like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to read from verse 15 to the end of the chapter and the book. As a response to today's sermon, the Lord's Supper will be served. And so after the sermon, as our deacons are serving the Lord's Supper to you, I want to encourage you to be a believer from any gospel-preaching church, but to be a believer, no less, acting consistent with your covenant in order to partake this with us. If you are not acting consistent with your covenant, with the church, having professed faith in Christ, and you're not walking with Him in that way, we would urge you to let the cup pass you by and to ask questions about receiving the gospel and walking with Christ, that you might be indeed eligible to receive the Lord's Supper at a local church. We're going to offer this today as a response, and it reminds us of the meaningfulness of the gospel and how Christ has laid down His life for us that we might have life. And so you can look forward to that after the sermon today. Let us read from... 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. The Word of God says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be, subjects, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, if we're to glean from this, your words of life, that which will make our lives better and bring you the most glory. We're going to need your help. And so we ask for your help this morning in this sermon time. We ask that you would guide us to have eyes to see and ears to hear your wonderful, wonderful words of life. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So we've been talking in a little mini-series here at church about consistency We've found in 1 Corinthians that consistency is a theme in chapter 16. So we've looked at consistency in giving, we've looked at consistency in service, and then today we're going to look at consistency in kindness. Consistency is defined as a pattern of behavior that is consistent or steadfast adherence to the same course of action, the same principles, conformity in the application of something. Typically, that which is necessary for the sake of logic or accuracy, we must be consistent, logically consistent, as some would say, of thinking, actively consistent in what we do. 
to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, let's make it real simple. We are drawn to people that are consistent in our lives, and we are frustrated by people that are inconsistent in our lives. Amen? We are drawn to people that are consistent. We are frustrated by people that are inconsistent. It's not about perfection. That's not what it's about. It's about consistent manners of behavior and thinking. And we are drawn to people that are consistent, and we are often frustrated by people that are inconsistent. And frankly, when we ourselves act in inconsistent manners, we frustrate ourselves, don't we? I mean, this is just one beggar trying to lead another beggar about where to find bread. Um, but, um, but consistency is important for all of us. It's important for me. It's important for you. And even though perfection eludes us, we should be a people that are striving for consistency. And particularly today, we want to talk about consistency in kindness. One of our church leaders is uh, Ron McIntyre. And he has the distinguished title of being the tallest member of the church, I think. I don't think we have anybody taller. What are you, about 6'4"? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's a tall man. Um, and so if you know anybody that's 6'5", I'd be glad to take him through membership matters because I want to test his 6'4 status in the church as the tallest man in the church. He also has a very deep voice. And when Ron prays, uh, I appreciate it very much because I'm, I'm moved by his heartfelt prayer. But he learned something from his grandfather that he has brought into his own prayer vocabulary. And I I asked him this morning because I wanted to make sure I had the words right. I was pretty sure I had it right. I knew I was within a word or two. But he will often pray these words, Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father. Isn't that beautiful? Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father. You know, we have a Heavenly Father that is kind, isn't he? And so because of His kindness to us, we over time can learn how to be consistently kind to others, can't we? I think this text is is inundated with a theme of kindness, from the family language to the specificity of names being mentioned, uh, to the idea of the affection we're supposed to have for others and for the Lord. And so I want to urge you this morning to practice consistent kindness in order to follow this text uh, and try to try to stay with the, the flow of the text. I'm going to break that into three parts. So I want to urge you to practice consistent kindness. And as we look at verses 15 to 18, consistent kindness to the leaders within the church. And then as we look at 19 and 20, consistent kindness to other gospel preaching churches, other churches, not our own. And then thirdly and finally, consistent kindness to the Lord Jesus himself. Kindness to Jesus. Love for Jesus. So I want to urge you, as we go through this text, you see the breaks at 15, 19, and 21 respectively. I want to urge you to be consistently kind to your leaders, to the churches, and to the Lord. So first of all, I want to urge our consistent kindness to leaders. Look afresh at verse 16. It says, I'm sorry, 15. Now I urge you, parakaleo, it is a spirit-induced word, a word of encouragement, of calling you to something. I urge you, brothers, brothers could be brothers and sisters because it's used in the plural in this context. I urge you all would be another way of saying it. So I'm going to exhort you now. You know, and then he kind of offers a kind of a break in the pattern and then comes back to be subject to these. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, be subject to these. Well, who are these? Well, they're the workers in the Lord. Well, who are the workers in the Lord? Well, he offers pronouns to make that description between the dashes. And so look at what it says in verse 15. The household of Stephanus were the first converts at Achaia. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
So there's a lot to unpack there, but in brief, this text is not urging you to be subject to or to listen to leaders that are very far-flung and, and out of vogue with service to the saints. There is a, a dance going on here between the leaders of the church and all the members of the church. But at the same time, it is good to have leaders in the church that model service to the saints, that are devoted or addicted to that service to the saints, and in serving the saints and being devoted to serving the saints, they engender a kind of trust to the other members that causes you to be eager to see them as kind and to want to walk with them, right? That's the kind of back and forth that this text and others like it seems to intimate. It's calling you to be, I believe, the Lord is calling you to be consistent in your kindness to leaders, but in recognition that those leaders are in fact servants, that they are dedicated to the service of the saints, devoted to the service of the saints. Now, there is a strong indication here, under just lurking under the surface, if you'll stop and see it, and that is a very simple yet profound truth that both the members and the members that happen to be in positional leadership in the church, all of them are converted. Look, look at this. It says that the first fruits is the word that's used. It's like the Old Testament concept of first fruits of a crop. It's what's used for the first converts in Achaia. Stephanus, who's mentioned in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, his household became leaders in the early church at Corinth. Notice the qualification for leadership. They were converted. And don't let the truth of this slip past you. They're converted. These folks are born again. We are not born as believers. We must be born again, John chapter 3 says. No one is born in, but born again. Gospel conversion is assumed in 1 Corinthians 16 and in verses like it in the New Testament. Christianity is a conversion religion. No one is born in it. We must be born again into it, adopted into the family of God. God presents an open door for the gospel, chapter 16 says, but there are many adversaries. That was last week's sermon. I want to ask you this morning, who are you praying for to be gospel converted? Who are you praying for to be gospel converted? Do you need to start? Think in your mind of someone that you would long to see converted by the gospel. And make a mental note or make a written note of the name of that person. And continue to or begin this very day praying for that person to be gospel converted. Do you believe they need to be converted? Do you believe that person will see heaven if they're not gospel converted? No, I mean, that's, that's what we've staked our claim to as Christians, right? Is that the person must receive Christ or they will not see the kingdom of Christ. This is gospel. This is the, this is the, the glorious, glorious offer, but also the hard edge of the gospel that we, we don't get to dictate the terms of entry the Bible says that there's only one name under heaven whereby must be, men must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. 
That's what we've professed in order to become parts of this church, of this body, and that's what we need to be taking to others. We are influencers with the gospel, ambassadors, disciplers, sharers. We are the ones that take the gospel to other people. Who are you praying for? God is pleased to move through the prayers of the saints. So I don't want anybody to leave this church this morning without a name of an unregenerate person that you know of that needs to be converted by the gospel. Would you pray for a person? Let's do it together. If each one would pray for one. I'd love to be able to track back to July 7, 2019, six months from now, to say God was pleased to save as many people as was sitting here and say, you know what? He must have honored our prayers. We were praying for somebody. Pastor called me to pray, and that person got... I mean, I'd love to hear testimonies like that two months, three months, six months, two, three days, five days, eight months from now to hear testimonies like that. But God is pleased to move through prayer. These letters in the New Testament are rife with calls to pray, God's given us an open door, and we're asking for you to pray for us as we walk through this open door. Pray, 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 pray. And we're still like, well, doesn't God know? Well, don't we know? Yeah, God still wants us to pray. I think part of being consistently kind to leaders is recognizing the conversion that God has wrought in their life and celebrating that in them. And part of the leaders being consistently devoted to service of the saints is recognizing the conversion that God has wrought in your lives and being celebratory about it, being thankful for it. I think part of being ever aware of where God has brought us from, from death to life, part of the evidence of that is for us to continually want others to have what God has graciously given us. And I believe that that is... The thrust of this first point, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, is that we are consistently kind to the leaders of the church because of gospel conversion, because of these things. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And it says, recognize, give recognition to such people. There's a lot here, but just very quickly to review. There's joy in what's being presented here. The Lord is moving through the writing hand of the Apostle Paul, and he wants the church to know that he rejoices at the fact that Stephanus and these others have likely carried this letter from Paul back to Corinth. It's very likely that they had reported, along with Chloe's people, to Paul what the problems were in the Corinthian church here in the AD 50s. And he's rejoicing at them being leaders like this, being emissaries and ambassadors for the work of the Lord through the church. And look at verse 18. Paul says, these folks refreshed my spirit. That's, that's what servant leadership does. It creates a safe place to interact. It refreshes the spirit of those that are fellow servants, that are fellow regenerate, that are also gospel converted. It says that Paul says he was refreshed. It says that, that they refresh my spirit as well as yours. And so these are refreshing servant leaders in the church. And he says something at the end, that last sentence that's, that's punchy, give recognition. Now, I, I think that those that serve should indeed seek to do so without needing recognition. But the Bible says there's something good about the church at Corinth recognizing such men. So perhaps there's something there in this rejoicing and this refreshing. There's maybe something else there about recognition too as we're being consistently kind 
to leaders. You, you might say that I recognize Ron this morning a little bit with what I said about his prayer and how his grandfather taught him to pray. But I think that was an encouragement that encouraged us too, did it not? It was a refreshing that refreshed us too. So recognition is never a one-way street. I found in life you cannot outdo recognizing other members in the church. It kind of comes back. It's forward-looking. It's to say, you know, I really appreciate this about you. It makes that person more likely to see what they appreciate about another person and another person. And it sort of reverberates through the congregation. And I think that's part of the idea as God's people, is that we are not withholders of encouragement, of recognition, of praise, but we say, I see this in you and I'm thankful for it. That is way different than false flattery and and, and trying to get something from somebody by puffing them up. No, 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 no. Love builds up, is what Corinthians says. So we ought to be about the business of loving one another by building them up, and that includes recognition. So let's pray for leaders that are devoted to the service of the saints like Stephanus was, and let's make sure that we can be subject to these workers, and let's give recognition where recognition is due. Let's rejoice in one another and be refreshed. So the first point is I urge our consistent kindness to leaders. The second one is I urge our consistent kindness to other gospel-preaching churches. That's right. I'm talking about other churches. It is our practice here to pray for missionaries. It's our practice here to pray for other gospel-preaching churches that we are aware of, some of which are right here in this area. We do what's called a Main Street Revival Service every September, and we do it with Agape and Calvary and First. We get together, and, and we sing songs together, and we pray together, and we're enriched by that. I think there's something that is instructive about this passage toward that aim and toward staying with that practice. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. The churches of Asia. So the churches of Asia send greetings to the church at Corinth. So they had some familiarity. There was some some networking among them. This was important to the gospel writers that this happened. The Lord wants this to happen. It says, Together with the church in their house. And it says, send you, They send you hearty greetings in the Lord. It says, All the brothers. And remember, it's an inclusive term, brothers and sisters, all of them send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. So this idea of gathering is intimated strongly here, this idea of greeting one another, of gathering in the, in the, in the cause of the gospel, of greeting one another in the cause of the gospel, and of knowing about other churches. We should not be myopic in how we see God's work in the world. It's good to know of, and, and so far as we're able to partner with other churches for the cause of the gospel. There were 30 churches at Camp Crossings this week when we went to Kentucky Lake, the Jonathan Creek Arm, for student camp. There were over 700 students and volunteers, and there were 70 collegiate-aged summer missionaries serving the camp. That's a lot of cooperation, isn't it? I mean, indeed, there's a lot of dollars on the table, but you think about feeding that many people all week, and the food was good, by the way. You think about feeding that many people for that long and making sure that needs, basic needs are met for the people that are living there over the course of the summer. That's a pretty good-sized operation, isn't it? Thirty churches saw fit to support and come together for this, and the Lord was good. One of our uh, folks with our camp here professed faith in Christ for the very first time on this trip. We had a good trip because... God was good to us, but it, wasn't a, it wouldn't have happened if we were unkindly, myopically not seeing God's work more broadly. We need to see that. 
We need to see other churches. We need to be consistently kind to other gospel-preaching churches, to insofar as we're able to speak well of them. The sociological giant Alexis de Tocqueville said, the strength of America, and I'm paraphrasing many quotes from him, but the strength of America is its churches, its faith. It's, it's not its manufacturing centers. It's not entirely even its, its form of government, although it allows for this through religious liberty. It's, it's its churches. And the moral fabric of the churches should be trackable to the spiritual grounding of the citizenry. And that's how we get forward to where we want to be. Our country is strong when our churches are strong, and our churches are strong when our members are strong, and our members are strong when our members are gospelly converted. We're not just gathering in a coalition of the willing. There is a litmus test, and the litmus test is the gospel. Have you heard and received the gospel? Can you guard and proclaim the gospel? Do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if you don't, I'm going to tell it to you right now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what Jesus did on your behalf that you couldn't do for yourself. That's the gospel. I mean, there's more to it than that, but there's no less than that. It's what Jesus did for you that you couldn't do for yourself. Well, what did Jesus do for you that you couldn't do for yourself? Well, he came to earth in the flesh and never sinned. Well, you can't do that because every one of you have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. He took on the penalty, the wage that you've earned in your sin of separation from God. He took on the penalty of death on the cross. And in a sweet exchange, in taking on that penalty of death for you, he offered you the free gift of eternal life, a gift absolutely for free of eternal life with the Lord. But you must receive it. The Bible says to all who receive this gospel, the Lord gives the right to become children of God John chapter 1 says. The gospel must be received. And so that is the gospel. It is the good news of what Christ has done on your behalf. If you believe in this gospel in your heart, if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth, call upon the name of the Lord with prayer, if you will be willing to repent of your sins and to share faith in the Lord with the Lord and with others, you will know life more abundantly indeed, John 10.10 10 says. This morning, I'm not talking about a club that you can't penetrate into. I'm talking about an outward-looking batch of believers that's calling you in to the family. You simply must receive the gospel. That's the gate you must walk through is the gospel. The Lord is working inside of you. The next step for you is to believe the gospel and tell someone about it, that we can begin walking together in this gospel. I'm confident that the kindness that we are showing to other gospel churches is proper and biblical, and I believe that they're showing kindness back to us. And I'm praying this morning and inviting you to pray with me for other gospel-preaching churches that they will see gospel converts just like what we're praying for and calling you to here as well this morning. I want us to be kind to other gospel-preaching churches. It is a great strength when we gather together as Main Street Revival in the fall. This church here sent greetings and it talks about the church in their house. Uh, some, I think, faultily believe then, therefore, churches must always meet in a house. Um, and this is a house, but particularly in a house. If a church is small enough to meet in a house, I think that's fine. 
Uh, I also think meeting in buildings is okay for a few reasons. This is what the ESV study Bible says about verse 19. It says, early Christian churches, since they were small and since Christianity was not recognized as a legal religion, met in homes. We see it in Acts and Colossians. There's extensive archaeological evidence for many different cities showing that some homes were structurally modified to hold such churches, end quote. And so prior to Constantine, Christianity wasn't legal in the Roman Empire. They met in homes. Sometimes they met in hiding, depending on who the emperor was. Uh, the early church did meet, though. They gathered and we're blessed to be able to gather as a larger group in a facility like this. So much work goes into uh, not only the, the attaining, but the maintaining of this facility. And I think it's right for us, when we think about the gathered out church into a house of worship, it's right for us to be thankful, isn't it? Are you thankful to have a place to come to church? When's the last time you were just thankful for that? And you were kind to somebody that's making that happen or has previously made that happen? I visited Miss Yuna Kuhn at Solarbron this week. She pray for her. She's 87 years old and she's going through some health issues. And I just it, the Lord instilled upon me as I was thinking about her and as I've been preparing for this text this week and spending time with the students. Uh, she's 87 years old. She's been a part of this congregation for many, many years. People her age have sacrificed so that you can sit where you sit. I'm not asking you to feel guilty. I'm asking you to feel grateful. You understand? I'm not asking you to feel guilty for not being 87. I'm not asking you to feel guilty if you're poor. I'm asking you to feel grateful in Jesus that you set where you set. Can we do that? And can you be grateful for God's broader work? I mean, he's doing that and has done that for the proclamation of the gospel to the glory and fame of his name in other churches. I'm not saying that all 330,000 churches in America are faithful to the gospel. How would I know? But some of them are, and are you grateful for that? Consistent kindness to other churches, to speak well of them, to love them. That's, what this, that's the heartbeat of this text, and to greet one another. I like what the ESV Study Bible says about verse 20 on a holy kiss. It says, like some other practices with symbolic meaning that change from culture to culture, like head coverings for wives or foot washing, a holy kiss would not convey the same meaning today that it did in the first century. But in most cultures, it would be seriously misunderstood. And in most cultures, it would be seriously misunderstood. Such commands are best obeyed by substituting an action like a handshake or a hug or a bow, varying by culture, that would convey the same meaning in a modern culture as a holy kiss would have in the first culture. I think that's helpful. Chapter 16, verse 20, greet one another, greet one another. Our gatherings should be inundated with greetings. Our greetings should be part of our gatherings, I think. Now, there is some discussion about whether or not we should have a formal greeting time. Some churches go away from that for good reasons, and I'm certainly open to how the Lord leads on that. But we shouldn't go away from being a people that greets one another, whether it's in the foyer or throughout the week or church to church, sending greetings one to another. We are a, a people that have had modeled for us by our forefathers and mothers in the faith. We've had modeled for us kindnesses to one another, even formalities. Formalities are important. It's important to be kind, to shake a hand, to smile at someone. Uh, if appropriate culturally, to look someone in the eye. Some cultures, they don't do that so much. But it, I think in ours, looking someone in the eye is a sign of, of kindness, a sign of respect. 
So in our culture, probably appropriate. I think that's enough about our second point. I urge our consistent kindness to other gospel preaching churches. Let's look at our third point and finally, verse 21 and following. I urge us to practice consistent kindness to Jesus. Now this point may just kind of seem like, why would you say that? Doesn't that go without saying? Well, it, to me it doesn't go without saying because this text says it. And so I want to say it again because I believe there's some spiritual reason for us to hear it again. Here's what he writes. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So he puts his signature on it, his stamp of approval. He may have had a secretary, what they called an amanuesis, writing for him. Chapter 16, verse 21 says, look at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathematized. Let him be accursed. Same word that's used in Galatians 1, 8 and 9 with the friction and problems there, with their, their problems with losing the gospel so quickly in the late A.D. 40s at the church at Galatia. You can read about that. The same word is used. Now, there is a, it's an odd place to have such language as this, it seems. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. It's a pretty strong imploration that we must love Jesus, right? Uh, we don't want to be anathematized. If you've lost out on the councils and how the word was used throughout church history, we don't want to be accursed. We want the blessings of God. There is a whole lot of problems in the church at Corinth a lot of problems. They've misunderstood marriage at places. They've accepted immorality they shouldn't have accepted in the church. They've sued one another wrongly. There's been a bevy of problems in 1 Corinthians. And as we come to the end, the Apostle Paul says that we should love one another. He loves them all, it says in verse 24. And it says that we are, I guess you might say, I hate to say the word only, but we should only use the word accursed in light of this entire book if we don't love Jesus. There's something about loving Jesus that leads us to write ethics and practice in other areas. This is a verse that is strikingly punchy in that it calls us in no uncertain terms to practice kindness toward Jesus, to love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? I mean, on the chants and the mantras and things, I mean, do you love him? You think well of Jesus. You speak well of Jesus. Do you love Jesus? There's an old saying, an old little phrase, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? It's deeper than a sound bite, though. Do you love Jesus in here? We got little chants we say at camp, all kinds of little chants, some about Jesus, some about mooses, but that's another story for another day. They talk about having a good time, but you know, at the end of the day, we are accursed without loving Jesus. We're to love the Lord, and we're also to hasten His coming. We should not speak ill of or marginalize the doctrine of the return of Christ. Our Lord, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in Revelation 2. Our Lord, come, a common refrain in the church. We are to love Jesus enough that we want to see Him. We want to see His glorified body. We want Him to come. And unless you think this whole accursed thing is the theme of the letter, it's not. It is the love because it's grace of the Lord be with you all. All of you. The grace of the Lord be with you. And He says, my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. So I think what we can take on this third point of practicing consistent kindness toward Jesus is that kindness to Jesus is kindness to one another. 
And that kindness to one another in the body of Christ is kindness to Jesus. We should love Jesus and love one another. This invites us to love the you all as we love the Lord and to love the Lord as we love the you all. There's really no exhortation here. It's just a pulse check to dust off your heart and be reminded of the love that God's placed in you for himself. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad to love Jesus? I'm going to tell you right now, you wouldn't love Jesus if he didn't first love you. That's good. I almost just ditched this point altogether. But the Lord seemed to be grasping me through his word right here that this is important to say again. I love Jesus because he first loved me. Isn't it like Ron's granddad said in that way? Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father. Isn't he kind? Do you think he's kind? That should lead us to be kind, right, to those that lead us in the church, to other gospel-preaching churches, and to the Lord Jesus himself in attitude and in action and word and in deed. We should marvel that this letter begins and ends with such kind comments when everything in between has showed us what a messed up church the church at Corinth is. That should encourage us today. This letter challenges the foolish, worldly-minded divisions and tolerance and immorality and confusion and selfishness and in the church at Corinth. And yet, he closes with my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. And that's where we should leave with this great theme of this letter, a call to robust love. As under attack as we may be, the love for Christ and his people in this local church is sweet and precious and is a result of a kind and gracious heavenly Father. And so I urge you to practice consistent kindness because of the love of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? And our deacons can come to prepare to serve communion. God, thank you. Thank you for consistently modeling kindness for us, actively pursuing us and being kind to us. We rejoice at the refreshing that comes by your kindness to us through the one another's in the body, through your direct action to convert our cold, dead hearts from death to life. I pray for those that are being awakened to your gospel, and I pray that they would be encouraged this day at this gathering, that they would be greeted in the gospel, they would be grown in the gospel, that they would experience the sweet kindness of you in your lordship. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we said earlier, the